This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT10. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman Program, the David Pakman Show, the Majority Report, the Bugle, Citizen Radio, Michael Pollan, the Young Turks, and Jim Hightower. I wanted to talk to you about phytonutrients. No, this isn't an infomercial. Phytonutrients like uh, anthocyanins. These are the things that are associated with purple colors. Find lots of them in blueberries and blue corn and stuff like that. Uh, they're antioxidants. They're anti-cancer. They, some of them help memory and help the brain. And there's just... You know, there's like good stuff in food, right? And so when you think about good foods, superfoods, what do you think about? You think about, oh, you know, hey, fresh corn on the cob or uh, spinach. Not so much. There's a really interesting piece in the New York Times over the weekend about phytonutrients, nutrients that come from plants that are produced by photosynthesis and, you know, plant metabolism. And what they found is that when we were hunters and gatherers, now keep in mind the human race appeared is the wrong word, but the the earliest evidence of modern humans mutated or whatever, uh, roughly 165,000 years ago in in, um, eastern Africa. When we first appeared, we appeared as hunter-gatherers, and some would say scavengers. And we were hunter-gatherers for 155,000 years. Most of human history. And just in the last seven to 10,000 years have we been farmers, agriculturalists. And when we were hunter-gatherers, we would, you know, we knew what was edible and what wasn't, and we ate a wide variety of foods. Uh, I, I write about this in the last hours of ancient sunlight. I think that the the average, I'm trying to remember the numbers. It's been it's it's been some. I wrote this book in '92. Um, my recollection is that it, it, the average hunter gatherer would eat several hundred different foods during the course of a year, and that the average American eats only dozens of foods during the course of a year or even during the course of their lifetime. I mean, just think of all the foods that you eat, right? They, there's really not that many. What, breads, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, pickles, burgers, fish, whatever, you know, if you're a, a meat eater, um, green peppers. I mean, it's just, you know, there's like, I mean, you start adding them up and it's like maybe 30. And that's all we eat. And it used to be that, you know, half the things out there that were growing, we would eat. I remember back back in the uh, 70s taking, uh, Louise and I took a, cl- a course at Wayne State University back when she was pregnant with our eldest. We took a, she, t- she and I took this course at Wayne State. Uh, we were living down in Detroit at the time on uh, wild edible plants. It was actually, uh, you know, wild plant taxonomy was the name of the course because you got to make it sound scientific. Taxonomy is the science of, you know, organizing things into categories. But basically, what we did is we went out in the woods, you know, with the with the professor, 
and the forests and the fields, and and we picked um, uh, the 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 rushes um, that that get you know burst into cotton at the end of the year. They look like a hot dog when they're when they're mature. We picked those when they were raw, and we'd we'd get uh, uh, lilies, and we'd be, we'd get the the pigweed and all these different plants. These, I mean, dozens of different plants that we started adding to our diet, including dandelion greens. You have to the key to dandelion greens is you have to get them when they're really really young, when they're real small and real fresh, and then they're not just horribly bitter; they're only moderately bitter. And uh, Anyhow, we, we, we learn how to cook all these things, and we, we, you know, fiddlehead ferns when they're just before they uncoil. In fact, Louise and I had some fiddlehead ferns when we were in Vermont weekend before last. So what has happened is because we no longer eat this stuff, we're no longer getting nutrients because what happened is over 10,000 years of agriculture, and in particular the last 100 years, and in particular the last 30 years of corporate agriculture, is that we have been planting, breeding for and planting things that are starchy and sweet or fatty and not things that have lots of nutrients. And so our diet basically doesn't have the nutrition in it that it used to. For example, corn. Blue corn has 99.5 milligrams of anthocyanins per 100 grams of dried corn. 99 milligrams in blue corn. But we don't eat blue corn. We eat white and yellow corn. White corn has one milligram. Yellow corn's a little better, uh, 70 milligrams if it's really bright yellow. But the blue is the, is the good stuff. Go into a store and say, hey, I'd like to get some blue corn on the cob. You know, the kind of stuff that the Hopis used to eat. Mm, sorry, not so much. Spinach. We think spinach. Ah, oh, Popeye, yeah. Eat my spinach. Well, there's 0.89 milligrams of antioxidants per 100 grams of spinach. That's 0.89. That's less than one milligram of antioxidants in 100 grams of spinach. Dandelion greens, on the other hand, have 6.89 milligrams of antioxidants per 100 grams. That's like 700% more. Apples, Granny Smith and Red Delicious Apples, they have 205 and 108 milligrams of phytonutrients, respectively, per liter of juice. That sounds pretty good, 205 milligrams of phytonutrients in a liter? Check out crab apples. I was, when I was a kid, we used to eat crab apples. I remember crab apples. Siberian crab apple, 4,600 milligrams of phytonutrients per liter of juice. Sikkim crab apples, 7,181 milligrams of phytonutrients. Lord, that goes Johnny Appleseed. He might pass by in the hour of need. There's a lot of soul drinking from the well locked in a factory.
Welcome back to your show. Great to have you with us today. I was reading an article in Mother Jones over the weekend about superfoods, and we've talked about nutrition and foods and big food and all that stuff on the show quite a bit. And this article was different in that it was really talking about something else, which is forget about GMOs and forget about processed foods and all the stuff we know is bad for you. Let's examine whether the superfood claims that exist among foodies and people interested in eating right <clears throat> are really legitimate claims or whether they need further analysis. Now, in the food industry in general, food spending is pretty flat. In other words, it rises with population growth, but if people become more wealthy, they don't buy more food. They just are more selective in what they buy. They may buy more expensive foods or they may choose to buy only organic, etc. So one way that the food industry responds to this is they come out with these new and improved products all the time. So the idea is get people to buy more expensive products, the products that we produce as opposed to others. And one big trend in this has been the so-called superfoods like acai berries, goji berries, quinoa, chia seeds, all that type of stuff. And the reality is that most of the claims around these aren't false, but they're not really unique. Uh, here's an example. Acai berries, right? The claims about acai berries are true. They are, they have a, a bunch of phytochemicals. They have a lot of antioxidants. They could potentially prevent brain deterioration or cancer. But the reality is that blueberries, for example, have a lot of the same properties, but blueberries aren't really in or hip right now. Although for a while, blueberries were. Larry King talked about eating blueberries. I remember a big special on... Uh, uh, nutrition and this whole thing. And the reality is that the things being said about these superfoods aren't false, but they're just not that different than from a lot of other foods. And, it, you know, quinoa is another good example. It's true. Quinoa delivers a complete protein, all of the amino acids that you can get in one complete package. But rice and beans together actually do the same thing and they do it even better. And it's way, way cheaper. And then we have to look at the impact that, for example, that quinoa farming has had on it, in, uh, you know, in, in its, where it's native. We have to look at the acai berries and goji berries. We really have to consider, consider, consider that. And where I get to on this is the same every single time, which is there is no magic bullet. More and more, what we seem to know, what we seem to learn is a well-balanced diet of real food is what's best. It's not about following individual trends. It's just about avoiding processed food and having a balanced diet. And that really seems to be what makes the most sense. Squarespace is a platform that allows people of all skill levels to build incredibly powerful websites simply and easily. They have first-rate templates you can use to build a professional-looking website or online portfolio in no time. If you want to see what they're all about, I suggest you take their online tour at squarespace.com slash tour. They give a great overview of what they can do and then show you why they're a great choice for businesses, photographers, bloggers, artists, and restaurants, just to give you a few ideas. And they even have built-in commerce tools powered by Stripe, so you can start selling right away if that's what you're into. So go ahead and give Squarespace a look, and then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT10, that's L-E-F-T and the number 10, to get 10% off your purchase. So consider paying for a full year up front to get the biggest discount. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show with your purchase. So again, the offer code is LEFT10 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. Saw this audio, um, I think it was posted on America Blog. 
This is 14-year-old anti-GMO activist Rachel Parent. She's Canadian. This debate is taking place on a pro-GMO Canadian, uh, uh, on a Canadian uh, TV show. I can't remember what the name of it is. Um, host Kevin O'Leary, who apparently was also one of the hosts of Shark Tank, whatever that oh, he was. He still is. Whatever that show is, like uh, about uh, it's 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 about entrepreneurs trying to raise money from these big CEOs. This guy's exposing himself as a very greasy old man in some respects, and he's not even that old. Uh, also greedy. Greedy, yes. Kevin O'Leary, who apparently had um, uh, a lot to say about anti-GMO activists, and here he is. They've invited this 14-year-old on who, do, who, who challenged Kevin O'Leary at a public speech to a debate. And here's O'Leary trying to, and she's been on the show for a minute or two when this uh, clip picks up. Here's O'Leary pretending that he cares about um, uh, uh, poor, starving kids in third world countries. Of course, this is a debate about GMO uh, GMO usage and labeling in Canada. But here's O'Leary trying to trump her arguments. Play this clip. And uh, let's say you weren't as lucky as you are. And you were born in an Asian country. You were 14 years old. Your only food was rice that had no vitamin A in it. You're going blind and then you died. 550,000 people your age die that way every year. And a company like Monsanto could come along and offer you a genetically modified rice that includes vitamin A that could save your eyesight and your life. How do you feel about that, Rachel? Actually, funny you mention this. Golden rice was scrapped because it didn't work. And in order for the average 11-year-old boy to get enough vitamin A from rice, he'd have to eat 11, no, 27 bowls of rice per day. Um, and another thing is, the reason there's blindness isn't because there's a lack of vitamin A in the rice. It's because their diets are simply rice. Well, that's the problem. You're saying even if he has to eat 30 bowls of rice, there's no vitamin A in what he's eating now. It's not scrapped. It's still being tested. And the bottom line is there'll be other ways to modify food to save people like that. Should we not be trying these things to help those that are Positive. dying? Or Okay, so here he's just gotten faced on his talking point that he got from Monsanto about a product that does not exist, essentially. Now his whole argument now to this 14-year-old this girl is, well, if a uh, unicorn came and said we could solve all problems, would you be against solving all problems? Continue. you against that, too? Should we be messing with Mother Nature? Well, what do you say to a child your age that's going to die? What do you say? I mean, in all reality, because golden rice didn't work, how can we fight for that? And so you don't want to see any attempts to stop food from being destroyed by insects. I mean, th what I'm trying to focus you on is, is there no merits to this at all from your point of view? My point of view is just that it should be, first of all, tested a lot more. I mean, it's only tested by the very companies that stand to gain by their approval. So... I really think that it, we should have independent studies and then mandatory GMO labeling. That's my thing. That way we can, as consumers, have informed decisions. Well, there's two debates going on here. One you want to see later. Now, uh, we just got this guy got faced again. Are you against everything that's good? Well, actually, I'm saying that we need to have labeling and we need to test this stuff. And now, 
what uh, Leary's going to do, O'Leary's going to do, is he's now going to break this out. He's he realizes he's just lost the labeling debate to this 14-year-old girl. And there's no reason in the world why we shouldn't have transparency about this. And if, if GMOs have a bad image, and GMOs are afraid that if we label this stuff, that people aren't going to buy it, that's their problem. That's their problem. They need to do more to compel people to feel like they can trust something that has that on the label. That's their problem. So he's now going to try and conflate these things, and now he realizes he's lost one, so he needs to bring in the other one to conflate it. Go ahead. That's one thing. But are you against modifying food at all? Which one? Um, I actually, I know this sounds radical, but yes, I am against genetically modifying our food. I, Rachel, I have a problem with that. That may be causing or basically giving a death sentence to millions of people around the world but, that are not as fortunate as you are. You know that uh, GMOs actually don't have higher yields either. Look, the point is to stop experimentation in a science Pause like it. this. Now, he just lost the debate. He's trying to make the argument that by saying that you're against genetically modified foods, you are, uh, you are, you are, you're, it's a death sentence. You're causing people to die by being against it. And then she says, well, there's no evidence that it is stopping the deaths of anyone. There's no higher yields. And then he's going, now he has to change the debate again to saying that she's against experimentation. Go. That has so much promise could be a huge mistake and effectively be a death sentence for those that need higher yields if they can get and them. Okay, so... He's now shifted the debate from you're against uh, uh, GMO foods, you're against labeling, you're against um, the, the existence, assuming they could do what I'm claiming that they can do, but we both now acknowledge they can't. So now you're against experimentation. Well, she responds uh, a couple of minutes later. First, she had talked about the difference between hybrid and GMO, the notion that we've always had hybrids, but GMO is, is, is very different. This, uh, you're taking uh, DNA from, uh, from, from different, um, from, uh, different uh, uh, organisms that would never essentially be able to uh, be injected into someone else's or something else's DNA. But then she goes on to talk about, you talk about experimentation, there are no independent tests. For instance, a common trait is pesticide producing. So they'll make the crops pesticide producing, but they haven't adequately tested. And Monsanto's longest study is 90 days. That really doesn't determine how long term it's going to affect our health, the environment, and even our entire ecosystem. Yeah. You know, saying Monsanto's testing in 90 days is a little mislabeling it because many other organizations, Pause. including a sound. Note the irony of him saying mislabeling. Go ahead like some ones you're involved in, do much more testing. So a product comes to market, many people test it, including the government. So Monsanto knows that about food. Actually, um, can I just, in Health Canada nor the FDA do any independent studies, and they rely only on the very studies provided by the companies that stand to gain by their approval, like Monsanto. There's other companies as well, right? Yes. <laughs> so there you have it. He, the, this guy is bald-faced lying to a 14-year-old because he is losing the debate by claiming that there are other extensive studies that exist out there by some, uh, I don't know, organizations, certainly not the government, it turns out. He's completely wrong. So here he is in full retreat now, 
and this is just the uh, the capper. No, in fact, um, 14 year old, there are uh, extensive tests. Definitely, we need a long term study to determine if it's safer in not only our ecosystem but our health as well. Yeah. Um, Dr. Rachel, we're in a long term study. You're eating genetically modified food, whether you like it, it or we're not. We're the lab rats. That, exactly. And, and, and yes, exactly. <laughs> we're the lab rats. Exactly. And this guy is simply arguing that we, sh we are the lab rats, so we're the lab rats. At least there's lab rats. Good for her. I want to put that clip in the, uh, the bin of clips that I will play my daughter. Very impressive. It's incredible. Really. And it just goes on. And then later on, we, she, he tries to ambush her with a clip from a documentary that his daughter made. And she's like, yeah, I actually have seen that, and I have some problems with that. And, he, and then he, and he decides not to run the clip because he's too afraid that he's, his daughter's now about to get faced, too. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Food, glorious food, food of the future news now. And, well, great news, Andy. The yeah. UN has solved world hunger. Yay. It's done it. It has done it. Oh, it's just one tiny, barely visible catch. It solved it in potentially the most unappetizing way imaginable. <laughs> How? Well, let me put it this way. You know that thing that you just stamped on with your foot when it crawled across the floor? Eat it, because you better get used to the taste of it. It's what we're all going to be eating in the future. <laughs> a, uh, essentially, a new UN report has revealed that eating more insects could dramatically help fight world hunger. And, you know, there's already a precedent for this working right now. Over two billion of the world's population already include insects in their diet. And uh, apparently, insect farming could be one of the ways to address food and feed security. That's what the UN report says. Now, for a start, Andy, I love the idea of an insect farm. And when I say <laughs> I love it, I mean it makes my skin crawl. Although, to be fair, insect farm, as a term, is basically directly interchangeable with New York City. <laughs> this, 
This might actually, this report might solve New York's budget problem in a single heartbeat, because New York now holds spectacularly large resources of the world's next foodstuff. <laughs> no longer is this the filthiest city on earth, Andy. Now it's instantly transformed into a sustainable, free-range, gourmet cockroach farm. <laughs> What's for dinner tonight, sweetheart? I don't know, honey. Let's see what we've got behind the fridge. <laughs> in fact... Mayor Bloomberg, Andy here, he should include this in New York's next, next tourist commercial. Are you hungry? Looking for a high-protein, low-fat snack? Why not just come to New York City and cycle down 2nd Avenue with your mouth open? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I'm not at all happy about this, John, because, you know, I, right. like, I like my food and there's no way mm. I'm prepared to eat insects. You know, the mashed-up connective tissue of pigs. Yeah, yeah, happy with that. <laughs> The liver, livers of birds that basically amount to aerial vermin. Yeah. The hack to pieces corpse of a mechanically slaughtered baby cow. Absolutely. Insects? <laughs> never. Unless they're basically insects that live in the sea, in which case, oh yeah, give me a bit of mayonnaise and let me rip its head off. I need a whole <laughs> stomach included in one go. I don't care if its dead eyes are staring at me and if it was waving at me from a bucket ten minutes ago. Yum. The, the report argues that wasps beetles and other insects are currently underutilised <laughs> as food for people and livestock. Uh, insect farming is, they say, uh, one of the many ways to address food security. Uh, they're particularly important as a food supplement for undernourished children. I insects are everywhere and they reproduce quickly, the report says. And they Randy have little bastards. <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> And they have a lovely chip in, Andy. <laughs> and uh, they have a high growth and feed uh, conversion rate and a low environmental footprint. It, it states that nutritionally, you can get just as much protein from a meal of crickets than a meal of meat. And uh, it goes on to say that the key obstacle in Western countries to insects as a foodstuff will be consumer disgust. <laughs> now, here's the thing, Andy. That seems like a pretty big f***ing obstacle to have people disgusted by something. You've got to be a pretty amazing salesman to overcome inherent revulsion. <laughs> what can I do to put you in this new, brand new Chevy Volt today? It, it's okay. I can wait for your gag reflex to stop. <laughs> d d don't worry, people often have that response. Sure, I, 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 can, I can give you a mint, no problem. So, let's talk about this car. Oh boy, no need to worry. Let me fetch a mop. <laughs> That's not an easy sale to make, Andy. Well, the thing is, you say that, John, but, you know, consumer disgust is simply quite easy to overcome. There's a lot of things we'll tolerate, as the price of our T-shirts will testify. <laughs> I mean, our T-shirts as a society, that's, not the Bugle-specific T-shirts, which true. are all uh, handmade by multi-millionaires in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of factory farm. But it, you know, the environmental thing is interesting, because uh, farm animals produce a lot, of, a lot of gases. In fact, farm animals around the world fart 18 trillion cubic metres of methane mm. an hour. Uh, and I might have made that figure up. But it means that, according to scientists, if all farm animals lit their farts at the same time, <laughs> it would blow the Earth 13% off its current axis. <laughs> but you couldn't get that with insects. You couldn't get that with insects. But what, I mean, the other question is, John, you're coming at this from a Jewish perspective. Are insects kosher? And can you slaughter a wasp in a halal ma manner? And right. mo most concerningly... What if I was tucking into a mosquito burger and one of the mosquitoes in it had bitten Osama bin Laden? I could be Ugh. eating his terrorist blood if it hadn't been properly cooked. Yeah, it's just not going to work, Andy. Yeah, so you it's wanna, not going to work. Yeah, definitely don't go medium rare. Have it maybe well well done if you're having it, just to be on the safe side. 
Well, one of the suggestions in the report is that the food industry could help in raising the status of insects by including them in new recipes and adding them to restaurant menus. You could also help raise the status of the insects only by photographing them in little tuxedos going to the opera. <laughs> Maybe get some Hollywood actress or models uh, to uh, be photographed dating an insect. I'm almost 100% sure that there are hundreds of actresses in Los Angeles that would be willing to do that for publicity. Uh, Rumours are that Tara Reid is currently dating a wasp. <laughs> they were photographed stumbling out of Nobu together where they shared a romantic meal. Tara Reid's publicist told E! News that they are head over legs in love. <laughs> uh, but the world has never quite mastered the issue of food and food distribution and with uh, population continuing to reflect, we are going to have to address this, John. It's become very an, an increasingly... It's become increasingly difficult to ignore the elephant that has made itself very comfortable in our living rooms, has taken a hearty shit on the rug by the fire, <laughs> and is now vegging out on the sofa and starting to make a move on our teenage daughter. We are going <laughs> to have to address this problem at some point. And as you say, it's a lot of it is psychological. Um, scientist right. Arnold van Haus from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, I mean, that sounds near enough, uh, one of the authors of the report, um, said that uh, there are a lot of psychological barriers. He had, did a blind tasting in which 9 out of 10 preferred meatballs made from half meat, half worm, than those made entirely from meat. So, but we see oh. the psychological aspect of food, you know, in euphemisms such as sweetbreads, offal, yeah. uh, cheese, you know, free range, that's hope tricked, and the word fresh, which basically <laughs> just means dead. Um, it, all comes down to, to, it all comes down to marketing, doesn't it? It all comes down to marketing. Would you like to eat a moth? No, thanks. Would you like to eat a hand-fried Fluttercrisp? Oh, yeah, that sounds lovely. <laughs> and the effect on kids' storybooks could be disastrous, John, because so many kids' storybooks yeah. focus on farm animals, as I'm sure you're aware from all the books that you've read to, uh, to Hoagie over yeah. the last, uh, last couple of years. Um, but the, uh, a lot of farm animals. So the unwritten tragic subtext, well, it's lovely that little Flopsy the sheep is running around the field with his friends Janet the cow and Wesley the chicken. But ultimately, don't forget... Flopsy's going to be put on the back of a lorry with 150 other little sheep, driven to an abattoir and in a fog of confusion, panic and fear, shot in the back of a head with a bolt gun before having his throat slit and being hum hung up on a hook and bled out before being hacked to pieces and having every part of his body dispatched to various shady parts of the food chain, if he's lucky. But that's the unwritten subtext. Not unspoken, <laughs> at least not unspoken, if I'm reading the book. <laughs> 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 Can't let your children live in a dreamland, buglers. Sleep well, kids! <laughs> Sleep well, bleeding from the neck, upside down. <laughs> Sweet dreams. I haven't read this, so please excuse me stuttering. Or, hey, you guys are cool with me sobbing through it, right? Is that good radio? <laughs> it could sound really stupid red. Jamie, you have it? to okay. just read it. All right, here we go. Uh, turns out I'm an alcoholic. And then I wrote, hooray, fuck shit. It took me 31 years to figure this out because I may not be good at drinking, but I am great at denial. Uh, I don't have too many horror stories. Maybe that's why it took so long. I blacked out a few times. I thought about drinking every day. 
I had a dream last night that I relapsed and I literally woke up shaking. Uh, so that was sweet. But no families were ruined. No lives were lost. Uh, for example, I'm not writing this because a court ordered me to. But as life has it, I can never have a drink again. I caught it before I made the news. How do you know if you're an alcoholic and not just a social drinker? Well, if someone asks you, why do you drink? And you respond with, so I'm not sad. Oh, no. You have a problem. Uh, I'm a comedian, and literally the day after this, when I should have been with loved ones solemnly reflecting, I had gigs in Kentucky, New Orleans, and Austin, Texas, uh, bastions of sobriety. I had no idea how much booze played a, uh, a role in my life until I quit. I saw it everywhere I went. In Kentucky, I was offered drinks before my show, after my show, in a mall, and Whole Foods. Whole Foods, which is supposed to be filled with health freaks, but no, it's filled with liars. Was it free-range wine? Go fuck yourself, Whole Foods. Sorry, I'm like throwing in words because, you know. <laughs> Uh, when I told the woman at the Kentucky mall, I didn't drink. Uh, she actually said, you're not an alcoholic if you make the wine yourself and then started <laughs> laughing. Uh, I think that's pretty much the definition of an alcoholic. Like if I ever find myself in my apartment stomping grapes in a dark room full of barrels, please call a nearby rehab. Or if I find myself drinking homemade wine in a mall. New Orleans the next day was even crazier. When I told a woman at my hotel that I didn't want a beer, she offered to show me her boobs. First of all, where were you when I was 17? Second of all, that's crazy. I was in uh, town the day before something called the Red Dress Run in New Orleans, which I think sums up NOLA perfectly. Uh, everyone, men and women, get up bright and early, and they run in red dresses for charity, but they do it drunk in the morning. We're going for to run for charity. Great. Drunk. Why? New Orleans. Oh. But I survived. I survived New Orleans. I survived Austin. I survived Texas, and I was proud. I did it. Uh, the problem was something still didn't feel right. So four days after I came home, four days after I admitted to having a drinking problem, four days after I knew I was still hiding something, I also had to admit uh, the big one, which is I have an eating disorder. Line up, ladies and gents, an alcoholic with an eating disorder. Are we on The Bachelor? But I have an eating disorder, which is weird to say. I have an eating disorder. There it is. I have an eating disorder. Alcoholic with an eating disorder because I have a flair for the dramatic. And a stand-up comedian with a drinking problem seemed cliche. Uh, what I do with alcohol, I also do with food, but much worse. I never thought twi twice about it, though. Uh, a lot of times people don't take eating disorders seriously because we all need to eat food to survive. We don't all need cigarettes. So we understand that as an addiction. When I saw a man the other day in Brooklyn drop his cigarette in the street, then pick it up without skipping a beat to keep smoking, I thought, yep, that's a smoker. YOLO, I guess. Like, that's an addiction. But if I told someone I thought about doing that every time I go to leave a restaurant and see people's leftovers on their plates, I'm just kind of weird and probably joking. So unless you aren't eating food or you have the most well-known form of bulimia, the binge and purge, you feel fucking dumb saying you have an eating disorder because it's food. It's like saying you're addicted to air or water. You feel alone. You feel like you just need better willpower. You feel hungry. You mean you eat to celebrate? You eat too much? You like food like the rest of the entire fucking planet? Well, yeah, all those things. But a lot of you reading this can stop. A lot of you aren't shaking when ordering takeout, not knowing whether to add cake to the order, then saying no cake, then saying wait, two pieces of cake, and terrifying the poor person on the other end of the phone. You don't have a bite of a bagel and think, fuck, I better get four more but even before your second bite. Uh, you don't plan all of your meals weeks in advance talking about them every day until the food goes into your dumb mouth. You don't hate yourself for it. You don't read menus at midnight. You don't feel like an asshole for writing this. 
I just thought it was funny that I ate a lot. That's what dudes do, right? We drink, we eat, and we treat women like shit. Dudes. <laughs> I would tell people that if they ever did like a behind-the-music type special on me, it would be the lamest one ever. Instead of heroin or a crack addiction, it would just be me on the road after a gig, naked in a bathtub, surrounded by stuffed crust, pizza boxes, sobbing into my phone. You don't know me. Click. Yum, 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 yum. And then I'd make a pizza sandwich, which I did for real. Uh, even after I admitted this, I thought to myself that there was no fucking way it was true, right? I was just looking for attention or trying to lose weight. So I told my family, expecting shock and horror, and instead got a whole lot of, oh, yeah, 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 no, 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 that makes sense. Fuck. Then I got sad. Then I wanted to eat everything. My sister, being the organized one of the kids, had sent me two online quizzes to take. One was for AA and one was for Overeaters Anonymous. I thought, here it is. Time to get called on my bullshit. Overeaters Anonymous? Really, Steph? Turns out I was in the 90th percentile for both. I haven't been in the 90th percentile for fucking anything, ever. I dropped out of high school with an average grade of a 22, and I didn't go to some hippie school with a weird grade system. I had a 22 out of 100. But an eating disorder with a drinking problem passed with flying colors. No willpower and crippling addiction? A fucking plus. I didn't know what to think. Alcoholism I kind of saw coming since I was younger, but an eating disorder as a guy is almost unheard of, publicly anyway. With alcoholism, there is something sort of like tough guy about it. It means I have stories that I've lived, right? As a man with an eating disorder, people just think, oh, so you're gay. First of all, I'm effeminate. Second of all, you think I'm gay? Thanks. Sorry, I'm back. You feel alone. You feel hungry. You feel like your problems aren't real. So you don't fix them. Then you feel full. Like so fucking full. Then you hate yourself. Then you hate yourself for hating yourself. Then you eat. Then you feel sick. Like so fucking sick. Then you start planning your next healthy meal to make up for the sickness. Then you think, well, I already fucked up today, so how about one last huge meal? Actually, it's Friday, so how about one more huge weekend? Like so fucking huge. Then Monday happens, and you're ready to get back on track. But now you have a headache from sugar withdrawal. It's like train spotting, but with carbs. And you feel dumb. You feel dumb again. Like so fucking dumb. And this is your life. So I'm writing this for everyone who struggles with addiction, but I really want men with eating disorders, diagnosed and undiagnosed, to read this. And I really want young men to read this. I want you to know that it's going to be okay. That, <clears throat> that you aren't dumb. You have a problem and there is nothing tough about suffering in silence. These faux macho idiot guys that would make fun of you for admitting you have a problem, these are the guys who are too chicken shit to face their own bullshit, that see self-care as weakness. You can all bask in knowing that all of their bullshit will erupt when they hit 40. We all have addictions. We all have obsessions. We all have things that get in the way of us living our lives. But the point of life is to fix these things, to be great, to improve everything every day. I learned that these addictions were weighing me down to the point where I felt buried alive. Fuck that. Fuck letting outside bullshit control you. You are stronger than that. You think a fucking bottle or a fucking dessert is going to ruin you? You're going to give in to those giant corporations that profit on you hating yourself? Fuck no. And you may slip up. We all slip up. Trust me. We all slip up. But once you admit you have a problem, you have a new agenda to get healthy, to be better. You will find other loves. You will find healthy food that makes you strong. You will stop when you're full. You will see your old self in the shadow of the drunk guy puking his guts out. You will walk away. You are a goddamn superhero. You will help others, and you will never be sick again. You will stop hating yourself, and you will be proud. Yeah! Bam, bam. Jamie! So there it is. Jamie! Yeah, Jamie! Right. 
Jamie. I hope uh, I only almost started crying once. What? Well, we already know from some of our fan- friends responding and the people on Twitter that that piece already helped uh a lot of people so that's yeah i mean that's like the coolest thing and i'm trying to respond to everybody and like here's what i can say this is what i've this is what i've uh this is what i've said the most uh on twitter and it's cliche it's a fucking aa thing uh you know you 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 hear about it all the time admitting you have a problem is the is the hardest step it's the it's the first step right and sometimes you just hear those as like words, right? Like I remember when I started comedy, I would always ask like these famous comedians, like, what do you, what do you do? Right? Like, wh- how do you, how do you get famous? And they go, uh, they go, you have to find your own voice. And you'd hear that as words and you'd go, oh, well, that's easy. Like I talk in my own voice. And then it's like 10 years later that you're like, oh no, I get it. I wasn't talking about me. I wasn't being vulnerable. I wasn't being myself. I was trying to be what I thought comics were supposed to sound like or whatever. And I remember feeling the same way with these words, like admit you have a problem. And I would do it like while laughing or I would do it and be like, yeah, that's fucked up or I should probably try to stop. But I never said the words, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an eating disorder or I have an eating disorder. Um, And so a lot of you guys who were writing me were saying this is going to make me look at my – issues or this is gonna i feel like i'm staring down the barrel of a gun of both of these is what someone said and that's almost admitting it right and i've said shit like that before and i've been like i have to stop binge eating i want to stop drinking and that never fucking works i can also see the two like being very triggering of each other you know like if you have one it to me it seems very likely that you might have the other because if you're drinking a lot, then you feel shitty. Then you want to eat shitty foods. Then you're eating a lot of shitty foods and yep. you feel bad about yourself. So you're like, well, I might as well drink again. Yeah. And lots of you guys have other addictions that maybe this like, you know, ties into or whatever. Um, and, but once I said those words, it was, it was just so fucking scary to me to say it. Cause it's hard to say it. But once you say it, you go, Oh fuck, I got to do something. And, it helps because now suddenly you're not someone who eats too much and you fucked up and then you're going to get – you're going to start dieting again, mm-hmm. whatever the fuck dieting means. And usually dieting is horrible and doesn't help. Um, eating healthy, feeling good helps but like fad diets, you know? But once you say I have an eating disorder, if you fuck up, you know you fucked up. Once I said I'm an alcoholic, I know if I drink again, I got to go to AA or I got to go to rehab or I got to go whatever. Um if I just said I'm going to stop drinking or I'm going to cool down or I'm going to take a break, then it wouldn't matter. And it progressively gets worse every time you try to stop and you get better. I mean I've experienced it. I've seen my family, my friends experience it. So that's what I implore all of you to do who are thinking about this or maybe have a friend that you should talk to who's going through this. Um, because you know it's only been three weeks that I've been sober and healthy, but I feel fucking great. I mean it was hard. It was really hard, and, and I hope I don't fuck up again, but, like, I just, like, I feel like another person. I feel like if I can if I can do this, I can do anything. And I know for a fact how fucked up I was, and that if I can do it, uh, you guys certainly can, because I am a mess. <laughs> Lately I've been thinking maybe I should just give up, but I ain't going out, so send a message, send a message. We are the ones that are caught in the wreckage. Send a letter to the captain. Send a message, send a message We are the ones that are caught in the wreckage
The supermarket is a very treacherous environment if you're trying to eat well or eat healthily. It's a very sophisticated landscape that's been designed to extract as many dollars from your wallet as possible. Everything from the music, the number of beats in the music you hear, to the location of products on the shelves, to the layout of the whole thing is designed to get you to buy as much as possible. So for example, the milk will always be the maximum number of paces from the door. And the reason is that most people want to go get a quart of milk and they want them to pass as many other things on the way as possible. So the path to the milk will um, have many, many temptations along it. The height of items in the supermarket, the eye level, is the most profitable items, the highest markup. Lower profit items that might be better for you are at the bottom. So you'll always see the highly processed cereals up here, and maybe the oatmeal, less processed, less profitable down here. In general, the supermarket is laid out so whole foods are on the perimeter. By whole foods, I mean unprocessed, real food, whether it's produce, milk, fish, meat. And in the middle is the most profitable, highly processed junk food. So one way to navigate the food market if you're concerned about your health and you're trying to avoid eating a lot of junk is try to shop along the edges and try not to go into the middle or go into the middle as little as possible uh, and you'll do a lot better. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Last year, there was this huge controversy about pink slime, and for those of you who don't know what it is, Jamie Oliver uh, really brought it to the national uh, attention. Basically, it's connective tissue, the throwaway parts of an animal or, or of the cow, and they basically get uh, thinly ground, and then after, or finely ground, I should say, and then they get treated with ammonium uh, and... Basically, they turn it into burger patties, and it doesn't sound like the healthiest thing to eat, but Americans were eating it in large quantities and not really knowing about it. Well, it turns out that a bunch of school districts throughout the country decided they're no longer going to serve pink slime to the kids, but now all of a sudden there are uh, schools in seven states that have decided, eh, we're going to bring it back because no one's really talking about it anymore. It's no longer on the radar. And Politico recently reported on this, and Newsbusters was upset about it because they're like, what the hell? It's beef. It's totally fine. Why are you guys hating on these corporations that make this, uh, what is it called, uh, the appropriate word? Lean, finely textured beef. Okay. Now, you get it from carcasses. It has a higher chance of picking up disease. You're scraping the bone. We've reported on all this in the past. 
a higher chance of E. coli and stuff. But Newsbusters is conservative, so mm -hmm. what they want to do is protect corporations at all costs. So they're like, oh, E. coli, what's the big deal? Right? So what do they say, Anna? They said, the tiny amounts of ammonium hydroxide the beef is treated with make it safer to eat, but the media have made it sound like this is bad. <laughs> tiny amounts of ammonium hydroxide, it's good for you. So let me just say, you know, according to the News uh, Busters rebuttal to what Politico wrote, they're like, look, it's just, it's parts of the cow that are difficult to scrape off. So, you know, they find a way to get those parts and they, they ground it and it's delicious and it's fine. You treat it with the ammonium hydroxide or, uh, yes, hydroxide and it's totally okay. But what, what you're failing to mention is that usually it's throwaway parts, like, connective tissue. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's the part that isn't very appetizing. So, and, and as Jake mentioned, it's the part that usually carries diseases that will make you extremely sick. Now, by the way, if you were a true conservative, you would actually love that they took pink slime out of the, the burgers and the ground beef because that's the free market at work. The consumers responded, they don't want this. Mm -hmm. You know, what, no matter what you think of how lovely the hydroxide is and how lovely the scraped off connective tissue is and the E. coli is, Consumers said we don't want it, and so they took it out of the beef. But in reality, of course, conservatives in this country, unfortunately, oftentimes, don't really believe in capitalism or free markets. Right. They believe in corporatism. So they're like, must protect corporations. Whatever the corporation was doing, it was great. Eat up that pink slime. It's good for you. So let me jump in and tell you guys a story that just blew me away. Back in 1997, the USDA started this pilot program with pork producers. And the pilot program basically went into five pork factories and told them, listen, we are going to allow you guys to self-regulate. We're looking for ways to save money. No, that sounds and like a great idea. The, and at the same time, uh, we want to, of course, test the product to make sure it's okay uh, afterwards. Um, but you guys can have private inspectors, basically self-inspection, which we all know isn't going to work when you have a profit motive. Well, they did that, and what they discovered was that three out of five of those pork factories produced meat that got people extremely sick. They were, they had fecal matter, it was ridden with E. coli, and it's just a, another example of how self-regulation doesn't work. I'm not one of those crazy libs who's like, we need to regulate everything. You know, we did that story about tattoos yesterday, and I said, it's over-regulation, just let them go, that's fine. But when it comes to food that people consume, you need regulation. You can't rely on that corporation or that factory to regulate itself. They're going to want to save money. It you know, it's part of the core function of government is to protect its citizens. Yes, that's true when you come to the military, the cops, but also the Food and Drug Administration. We have to know that the food we're eating, the drugs we're consuming are safe and are not going to kill us. But like conservatives now, they haven't really lost their minds. They've just gotten brainwashed by corporations who say, no, 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 just trust us. Self-regulation totally works. Don't regulate us at all. We'll save a tiny percentage of money. And then they're like, oh, great. Nobody's looking to throw the fecal matter in there. And to give you a sense from the pink slime story, you know how much they save by using pink slime? 3%. I know. It's amazing. 3%. That's it. And you know what? The minute you weren't looking, four states were like, oh, bring it back. We're going to save 3%.
some aspects of American agriculture are quite odd. For example, to meet a farmer these days, there's no need for you to venture out to the hinterland because thousands of them actually are city slickers. And they're really slick. For many of them, neither plant nor harvest wheat, cotton, peanuts, or any crops at all. Rather, relaxing in their often luxurious urban nests, they farm the federal farm bill, harvesting millions of dollars each year from taxpayers. A new report from the Environmental Working Group reveals that more than 18,000 people living in America's 54 largest cities pocketed about $24 million last year from the Ag Department's direct payment program. New York City, for example, has 152 of these farmers. San Francisco, 116. Chicago, 393. Denver, 821. Tampa, 100. Tucson, 328. And Houston, 1,405. That's because the program makes payments not only to real farmers, but also to people who merely hold an ownership interest in farmland. Whether or not any crops are raised on it, and even if the city-dwelling recipient has never visited the place. Ironically, this cockamamie payment scheme was put into the 1996 Farm Bill as a transition measure to wean farmers off subsidies. But it's been renewed twice, and it looks like our gridlocked Congress is about to do it again, even though it pays zero to the majority of America's farm families. Indeed, the bulk of the $5 billion paid out annually goes to the biggest spreads, including multi-million dollar corporate operations. This is Jim Hightower saying, even if Congress creditors finally muster the political gumption to stop this absurdity, they intend to replace it with a more bizarre crop insurance scam that's a guaranteed income program for multimillionaires. For more information, go to ewg.org. This story from the Washington Post from uh, Sunday. A meat inspection program that the Agriculture Department plans to roll out in pork plants nationwide has repeatedly failed to stop the production of contaminated meat at American and foreign plants that have already adopted the approach documents and interviews show. That's comforting. Hey, what happened? The program allows meat producers to increase the speed of processing lines by as much as 20% and cuts the number of USDA, DA, and safety inspectors at each plant in half, replacing them with private meat inspectors employed by meat and companies. Hmm. Hmm. Why might that be a problem? I really have no idea. I mean, if you're working for the guy who is interested, or gal, who is interested in speeding up your lines and not getting bogged down in this whole thing about fecal matter in your beef, that may end up being your job number one. Just make sure that the, uh, the beef gets rolled off the lines quicker. 
The approach has been used for more than a decade by five American hog plants under a pilot program. But three of those plants were among the ten worst offenders in the country, with serious lapses that include failing to remove fecal matter from meat, according uh, to a report this spring by the U.S. DA Inspector General. The uh, plant with the worst record by far was one of the five in the pilot program. In these cases, contaminated meat did not leave the plants because it was caught by government inspectors once it reached the end of the processing line. Well, let's get rid of those guys, too, and put some private inspectors in there so that this meat can roll off those, those conveyor belts quicker. But federal officials consider this too late in the process and repeatedly cited the plants for serious safety failures. While the inspection procedures are still in the experimental stage, the USDA has allowed other countries to use a process deemed to be equivalent in plants producing red meat for export to the United States. Within the past two years, plants using the procedures in Canada and Australia have experienced a rash of problems. That's according to emails, letters, and other documents. For example, a Canadian beef processing plant using the inspection system had to recall 8.8 million pounds of beef and beef products tainted with E. coli, about 2.5 million pounds of which went to the U.S. market. Now, I know my libertarian friends would say, why not just put the fact that this meat is more likely than other meat to contain E. coli, therefore we're giving you a 20% discount. Isn't that the Milton Friedman uh, suggestion that he gave about the Pintos? Look, you got a 20% more chance of getting E. coli. We're going to give you a 25% discount on the beef. You can roll the dice. Since the beginning of last year, 11 shipments of beef, mutton, and goat meat from at least four Australian plants using the procedures were stopped at U.S. ports because of contamination which included fecal matter and partly digested food, records show. Those of you who are listening live uh, during lunch, I hope you're having a cheese sandwich. Uh, USA uh, DA officials have told federal auditors that the agency plans to complete its evaluation of the pilot program by the spring and hopes after that to propose rules for expanding the inspection system nationwide. Um, excuse the pun, but I think that puts the um, cart before the horse. Dozens of chicken plants have also been enrolled in a similar pilot program. Uh, these new meat inspection programs dates to 97 when the USDA announced it would allow five hog, large hog plants to enroll in the Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Point-Based Inspection Model Project, commonly referred to as HEMP. <laughs> this, of course, was uh, a function of heavy lobbying by the uh, meat industry. In a separate report issued this month, the Government Accountability Office said it would be difficult to recommend that experimental procedures be extended across the country based on the pilot program. Hmm, I'll say. You notice how all of these proposals that libertarians, libertarians will say to you, ultimately the types of policies they're pushing will make big business somehow more accountable because they won't be able to collude with governments. But why is it that big business is always pushing for libertarian proposals if it actually threatens them? 
What's that? Oh, you're saying? Oh, I'm saying like every time libertarians are like, well, really, business will be well, more accountable without regulation. But it always seems like libertarian proposals are always lobbied for, lobbied for by big corporations. Well, that's because they care about the greater society. It may be more onerous on them, but these um, these uh, these industries really, at the end of the day, care about society more uh, more greatly. Although I thought of it that way. Before. Although. You know, the idea is that they're acting in their own best interest, and that's going to bring about a greater societal uh, benefit. I don't know. It gets a little bit uh, complicated, I guess, once you start getting into the, the weeds or into the... It goes from exhausting to really literally nauseating. I wanted to call really quickly in response to a caller who was talking about violence in video games and about uh, on, the, on the most recent podcast, specifically that although there's all this information out there, we really can't, you know, put that aside for the fact that they might be impacting gun violence out there. And I understand there's a bunch of studies out there that show otherwise, and there's millions of people who watch video games. All I'm trying to say is I think that they're... We can't just say, video games, no, that, that, that's not it. We can't be dismissive of the fact that video game violence, uh, for those of us on the left, may contribute to the potential problem of violence in our society. Um, I, I think you can put that aside when we have uh, study after study that are showing that, no, actually, violent video games have nothing to do with whether or not people go out and commit mass shootings. In the same way that they could talk about it all they wanted in the 80s and 90s about rock and roll and metal adding to suicide or adding to gun violence, and it didn't do that either. Um, I think it's really important that we don't let science aside. And the second thing I wanted to bring up, which I think would be a great topic for a future podcast, is the false equivalency between the right and the left. The effective conversation is basically being drowned out by the extremists on both sides. And I would argue that Wayne LaPierre, he's an extremist on the right side. And I would argue that we've got our own, like Ed Schultz and uh, Shank Uger, um, on the left side of things who are extremists. I appreciate the caller's effort to say that, yes, we have some quirky people on the left in a way that there are quirky people on the right. But it, I think it's a pretty extreme false equivalency to say that Cenk uh, or other uh, left-wing pundits, talkers, you know, talking heads, are the same as Wayne LaPierre, who is owned by the gun industry and whose only job it is to make us all think that if we have a gun, we're going to be safer. Cenk doesn't do anything of the sort, and he's not paid for by those same kind of people. So even if you're not a fan of his, I, I think we do that far too often where we try to be fair on the left so we say, I know, they've got crazy people, we have crazy people, or they've got politicians doing bad stuff, we've got politicians doing bad stuff. Sorry to be biased on the left, but I really don't see it as an equivalency. So anyway, uh, thanks very much. Keep up the great work. I really appreciate your podcast. I've been a listener since day one. And uh, thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Jake in Lincoln, Nebraska. I just listened to, I believe it was episode 755, 
And uh, the fellow at the end wished to remain anonymous because he is a recovering alcoholic slash drug addict. I'm I'm not I don't care about my anonymity, and uh, I'm I'm in, I'm the same uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And uh, he the reason I'm calling is he made a comment to the effect that he had to basically hide what he was from the people that he associates with, I think, work and uh, and things like that. I'm not sure he wasn't real particular, real, very specific, but um, I don't know if he's aware, but this, you know, um, this has been, uh, the AMA declared alcoholism a disease back in the mid-50s. It's been very accepted as such for a long time. Uh, and I have found that uh, I don't I don't meet anybody anymore who looks down on that. Uh, you know, practicing wet alcoholics and addicts still using and you know that's a different story. But those of us in recovery, I find that if anything, we get a lot of respect. And hiding in the shadows like that, so to speak, uh, it, it's it's not necessary. I, I think he would be amazed that if he were to quote unquote come out and just uh, you know, let it be known. People are gonna, they're gonna have a, uh, a new respect for him, and I think he would feel much better about himself. Anyway, um, I love your show. I've been listening for quite a while, and uh, have a good one. Hi, Jay. This is Emma from Texas. Just to point out one thing I've noticed is that legalizing versus making drugs illegal. We use all sorts of arguments, but one of the central things that seems to bother people on the side of prohibition is that legalization would sort of condone drug use in all its incarnations. It seems kind of a basic point, but I think it's important. Drug abuse is disturbing. I've personally watched someone rely on pot rather than getting professional help in a situation where that just wasn't the healthy choice to make. The point is we get very distracted from logical arguments and real-world, scientifically proven social outcomes, when we imagine the, I don't know how to say it, but the loss of control, the sense that we have lost our personal battle with the friend or relative who abuses drugs and whom we've been lecturing all this time about how it's not okay, it's self-destructive, whatever, it doesn't feel right. And I put that in the box with reproductive choice. It doesn't feel right if we concentrate on how we personally feel about ending pregnancy, then it doesn't feel right but it is. I don't want my friend to feel legitimate about the way she's been abusing, but that's a selfish desire, and I need to overcome that in order to believe in what's right for society as a whole. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just a, a real quick note on sort of the, you know, my personal inner workings in terms of, uh, you know, which, uh, which messages get played on the show and which ones I decide to respond to. I just thought you might find it interesting that uh, the the first message played today was a response to to a message played on the previous episode and on the previous episode I very specifically and, and and intentionally did not respond to that call at all you know the guy saying that although you know scientific evidence shows that violent video games do not cause people who play those games to become violent it really feels like there might be a connection there and so we shouldn't dismiss it and 
I thought, you know, I'm not going to touch that at all, not because I didn't want to or didn't think it needed to be uh, responded to, but because I thought that is exactly the sort of thing that I can practically guarantee someone is going to call in and respond to, which is exactly what happened today in, in, in the first message that was played. So that, that I just I love when that works out exactly as hoped. Um, but speaking of the, the voicemails that come in, I, you know, I'm starting to get more than can you know, be, be played in the show. And I mean, that's been happening for a while, but more like, I mean, there are good ones that I really wish would fit into the show and they just don't quite fit. And, you know, some of them it's because they're too long. And, and so it's sort of unfair to let someone talk for five or seven or eight minutes. And, you know, while there are several other people who have called in and left perfectly good, uh, but shorter messages. So I try, try to mix it up a little bit. We get more voices in there. Which is making now the, uh, the, the members only bonus content that much more valuable. So I'll do just a quick shameless plug. Uh, but especially because the stuff going on there is pretty interesting. I got a message from, from a woman. It was, you know, seven or eight minutes long after one of the most recent, uh, episodes on feminism in which she basically claims that, you know, my idea of how to do a show on feminism doesn't comport with you know, basically her concept of what feminism should be at all. And she spoke at length about that. So I went in and I played that in full on the members only feed. And so now there's a conversation going on about that. Got a couple more, uh, you know, responses to her. And so there's a, a little bit of an interesting uh, conversation about uh, feminism going on there. And then uh, also recently I, I did an analogy about uh, you know, privilege of any kind, white privilege, male privilege, and so on, uh, being sort of like a bank error in your favor. It's not something that's your fault, but, you know, but it's still, you know, benefiting you. And, uh, and Colby called in and, and left a really great addendum to that. But, you know, I mean, it's about five minutes long. <laughs> he, he, you know, he goes into some detail and, and so that's definitely going to get played on the, uh, on the members only show as well. I might, uh, you know, give a like a brief overview of it in, in a coming episode, but uh, you know, really interesting stuff going on. So if you're, you know, if you if you like the voicemail section, I, I I owe it to you know myself and the health of the show, and uh, you know, but also to you if you're interested in becoming a member and and getting more of the voicemail section and and you know interesting conversations going on and my responses to them, uh, all of that comes along with the uh, membership to the show, which obviously is how you know the show survives in the first place. So if you're interested, check that out at the members only uh, or, or the members tab at the website. All the details are there to sign up. And as soon as you do, I will send you all the details about getting that extra content. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame. How we get so trained